Today is August 17th, 2020, and this is Sam Walking in the World, episode 11. Okay, as usual, I have a lot to talk about today. Um, the main thing I'm going to be talking about is uh, exhibitionism. And um, I was thinking how we're living in the age of the permanent audience, especially for young people on social media. So I'm going to get to that. I have some lifey stuff, some language stuff, and of course I have some stupid stuff. So let me get right to the stupid stuff. I've been thinking about a few things that people do daily that if we did them the same way, things would be a lot easier. Like if you didn't have to guess which way people would happen to be doing something. Like, uh, uh, for example, driving. We all have entered into this sort of social contract that's now become legalized, which is we drive on the right side of the road. No matter what direction you're going in on the road, you move to the right when you're going. And uh, other people go to the right, and it makes for a nice little system where nobody runs into each other. And I wonder why people don't seem to keep that in mind when they're walking places. The number of times I've been walking towards somebody in a direction and we end up, I, I, my natural inclination is to move to the right. And it doesn't seem like that's true for everybody. Like, you just drove here, right? Like, say you're at the mall. You just drove here. And, and every time you wanted to get somewhere, you moved to the right. And you waited in order to go to the left. And yet, here you are walking toward me, and as we approach each other, you're angling to your left, which is my right. And then we end up doing that uncomfortable dance, where sometimes people actually even say, oh, well, now we're dancing. But, like, it's okay when it happens once in a while, but, like, if you're walking, like, for example, at the State Fair, New York, New York State Fair is a huge fair, and there really aren't any parameters for where you're supposed to walk in these, in these giant avenues moving around through the parts of the fair. And it is one of the most frustrating things because you literally spend, I don't know, a fifth of your time stopping and readjusting where you're walking. And I just wonder if people are aware of that. I guess it's, I guess, like I said, it's stupid. So it doesn't really matter. But I just wonder, like you just drove here. Doesn't it occur to you that you should move to your right? And then it'll work out for everybody. Here's another one. Here's another one. If we all did it the same way, we would avoid instances of of that momentary frustration that comes with daily things. Because if you have enough of them in your life, you're like, want to shoot yourself. And this is the other one. It is toilet paper. You know, you, you I, some people can't like my my some people I know. I won't name anybody. They can't go number two anywhere but at, home, but at home. I myself have no problem with it. I've number twoed all over the place. And I've gotten to know people's bathrooms. I'm very clean, though. Like I said in a previous episode, I leave it like I found it. Um, unless there's no uh, air freshener spray, in which case I leave it a little different than I found it. But um, toilet paper. Some people have their toilet paper roll placed on the holder so that 
the sheets of toilet paper feed from the back, which means on the front you have to you have to flick it up like maybe the back of your hand or the front of your hand or whatever, and then the toilet paper comes out the back, and then you have to reach past the roll underneath it in order to rip it off. Versus people who put it on the holder where the toilet paper comes over the top and then down the front, in which case all you have to do is flick it down. Now, honestly, I guess it doesn't matter, although I am a proponent of front-facing toilet paper because... First of all, gravity is on your side. You're flicking down and not up. And and two, it's right in front of you, so you can just rip it off right in front of you without any obstructions. But like I said, it doesn't matter. Honestly, it's really not that big of a deal. What is a big deal is that everybody does it different at different times. So I'm, I'm asking you. I don't know. My, my audience isn't really not that big yet. But all of you out there, Try putting your toilet paper on front-facing and just see how much more satisfaction you get out of your number twos. Okay, I've said way too much about that. Moving on. Um, language things. I've heard this expression, um, and old people use it. I'm old, so it's. I just feel like everyone always talks about the, the, the new generation in that old person way. You know, they always do the, like, in my day, you know, and, and it's just, I, I, I'm, I've gotten out of it. I've escaped that box. I recognize things are always changing and there really isn't that, and there really isn't anything that's intrinsically better about my time than, than the new time. There's always good stuff and bad stuff. Um, but I've, I've heard, I've heard people say this expression Oh my gosh, society is going to hell in a handbasket. Oh geez, you better, you better stop doing that. You're going to go straight to hell in a handbasket. And I've said it a whole bunch of times. And I've always, no not always, but I've recently been thinking about what what does it mean? Why a handbasket? I always imagine like, am I walking with a handbasket? Am I in the handbasket? Is that how people are, like, is there, like, uh, a giant gondola that leads to hell? And we're all sitting in, like, a giant basket as we get to look at the view. Oh, there's Hitler. I don't really. So I looked it up. And it comes from the 1800s during the gold rush when... Um, they would have to lower people down into the mines in order to set dynamite so they could blow up more of it and look for more gold. And at the time, dynamite was a very tricky thing. And if they didn't get it right, it would explode. Sometimes it would explode early. And the, the vehicle that they used to lower people down into mine shafts was not unlike a handbasket. It was a giant kind of container that people would sit in. And there would be either a chain or a rope or whatever, and they would lower the person down. And then they would set all the dynamite, and then they would get back in the giant handbasket, and they would be lifted out. Sometimes they did not make it all the way out. If the dynamite exploded, and uh, they would likely be killed, and they would be in the handbasket, so to speak, when it happened. Now, I wonder why it's not heaven in a handbasket. 
Like, was everybody just a jerk back then? Or or did everybody just presume they were going to hell? I don't really understand that. It could just as easily be going to heaven in the handbasket. Um, I guess I have to do a little bit more research on that. Um, here's another pet peeve of mine when it comes to language. This is something that people use. I don't know when it switched. It was like a like a light switch. It just got flicked, and everyone just started saying it differently. And I guess that's the way language works. Whatever it is that is most commonly used tends to convey the meaning, except sometimes it it, it gets untethered from its original point. Like, th this is the example. I've heard people all the time say that something is based off something. Oh, yeah, it's based off the Dewey Decimal System. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's based off... Uh, Greek philosophy. Things aren't based off things. They're based on things. A base is a foundation. And so if you want to build something, you're building it on the foundation. You're, ba you're basing it on the foundation. Um, you can, it can be a jumping off point or a leaping off point, a launching point, so to speak. That would be off it. Basing something is on something. Now, I don't think that's going to turn around. I think it's taken hold. It's kind of like a vocabulary coronavirus. I guess we're just going to have to live with it. Okay, I'm going to take a quick break. And when I get back, I'm going to talk about lifey things and happiness hints. And uh, in particular, my colonoscopy is tomorrow. So I have a little bit to say about that after this message and welcome back to sam walking in the world episode 11 that message was brought to you by something good happening on a video game now my colonoscopy back in the day it would have been all i was thinking about i would have been online researching it i would have fast forwarded to the worst possible outcome like, uh, I know I have cancer, and how do I fight cancer, and what things should I eat now that I have cancer? And uh, I don't do that anymore. I, I keep reminding myself that life is short anyway. You know, I think it's that people get people try to put the idea that they're going to die for certain in a closet. And they don't think about it. And so when things come up that suggest an end of life, they think, oh, no, no, I can't. That can't ever happen. Well, it's going to anyway. And once I once I made friends with that idea, number one, most of the things that you think are going to end your life don't. And, and, and it's not as bad a tragedy as, as you would think because this life is finite anyway. Now, there might be an afterlife. That would be pretty awesome. In the meantime, I'm going to put as many things as I can in my bucket so that my bucket is enormous when I get to the warehouse. Those of you who have listened before understand what I'm talking about. Anyway, my colonoscopy. Um, it's tomorrow, like I said, and um, I'm feeling about as good as a person can feel about uh, a colonoscopy. Um, I don't like the fact that I have to starve for a day. Like Today's the day I don't get to eat. And um, I can only drink clear liquids. I usually don't eat breakfast anyway. Um, I'm one of those people that does because uh, part of my losing weight, and and in combination with my acute look forward to itism, 
I would put off my meals anyway. So I'd wake up, I wouldn't really eat much on an ordinary day. And then I would probably have a meal, I'd have something small, like around two or three, like carrots or, I don't know, maybe even potato chips or something. And then at night I would have my meal, and my meals are mostly meat and vegetables. But what it ends up doing is, is allowing for there to be many hours that go by while not eating normally. Like if I go to sleep at 10 o'clock, there's the whole night where I'm not eating. And then I wake up in the morning and I'm not eating. And I barely eat until almost that same time of day, maybe two or three hours before I went to sleep. And so um, I, I've, I've found that it works for my body. I don't recommend it. And I'm not a nutrition guru or anything like that. <clears throat> but it doesn't really bother me that much not eating, except I do look forward to eating in the evening. And now I won't be able to today. So that's that, my complaint. But I was talking to my wife about, um, we're all at the age now where everyone's getting their colonoscopy. I'm 48, like I said. And um, I had a bout of diverticulitis earlier. And uh, I probably will end up talking more about that. Um, that really, that experience really made me appreciate just being normal. You know what it made me appreciate? Not having a bag attached to a tube inside my body. It's amazing how having a bag attached to a tube inside your body for a while really makes you appreciate it when it's not there anymore. But that's neither here nor there. But we were talking about colonoscopies because so many people are having them at our age group. And the reason why I'm having it before 50 is because of the diverticulitis. The colorectal guy said, hey, why don't you do this? So I'm doing whatever he says. But my wife was telling me about how her father, my father-in-law, when he had his colonoscopy done, he asked to not be drugged. He wanted to be aware of what was going on. You know, he, and, and she was saying how he said it was, was kind of neat to listen to what the doctors were saying and, and be aware of the steps in the procedure as it was happening. Honestly, for my part, I, I really don't feel that way. Um, you know, I feel like if you're going to put the basically the medical equivalent of a plumbing snake up my backside, I'd rather just be a barely conscious subject. I don't need to be a, a co-equal participant in the process. I trust that they know what they're doing. Um, and I just, I don't need the play-by-play. -play. I have no desire at all to see Dr. John Madden working the telestrator. See here, he's using the twist move to get around the corner, and then boom, the polyp doesn't even know what hit it. I, I don't need that. So I'm uh, ready for it, and I plan on being drugged. I guess that's the long and short of that. Now, on to larger things. Today, like I said, I'm talking about the age of the permanent audience. When I grew up, and, you, and, and I was going through my adolescence and post-adolescence where I felt like I was the center of the world. And I did crazy things. I like to attribute it to the, just the chemical explosion that's going on in a person's body. The sudden awareness of self in the world and, and the e egotism that kind of goes with it. It's very natural. I see it in young people. And I don't think like, in my day, you know, I think everyone goes through that but there is this uh, another 
factor that's involved now that I don't think, I mean, I know was not involved then. Back then, what, what, what caused your shame after you did something stupid was that people remembered it and people talked about it. They weren't able to watch it on a permanent loop and send it to everyone in the world so they could watch it on a permanent loop. And so they had, the young people now, I think, have to be a lot more cautious. And something you did years ago can ruin what you're doing now, and it doesn't account for the fact that people grow and change. Um, so, uh, and it got me thinking, too. Let me start back here. Uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne, the writer, said, no man for any considerable period can wear one face to himself and another to the multitude without finally getting bewildered as to which may be the true. In other words, you can't have one idea of who you are when you're alone and a different idea of who you are to other people without eventually not knowing which one is you. And so I've had a lot of experience with with the adolescent age people. I've been a, a high school teacher for 26 years. And one thing that I notice, and it's I'm sure it's it's intertwined with the, the explosion of social media, is that is that they, they seem to have an external locus of identity. An external locus of image and what eventually I think leads to self-worth or the lack of it. But by external locus, I mean it seems to be derived by the perspectives of others because there's so many others available for you to create a perspective for, if you follow me. And so in a sense, this has become the age of the audience and the age of the performer too, but, but it's the age of the permanent audience, like I said. Um, and it's it seems like people are very preoccupied. Young people are very preoccupied. No, and now I do sound old. Young people are preoccupied not with what kind of person am I, but what kind of person can I get you to think I am? I mean, even right down to photo filters. You have no idea who that what even what that person even looks like. You know, yearbook pictures now are like they're like not real um okay look back at most attractive in the superlatives for high school and it was based on what people really looked like so, so a young person right now might look back at a a, a, uh, a yearbook from like 1989 and and look at the most attractive person and be like that's not really all that well yeah they haven't they haven't run their photo through a perfection filter um, anyway, uh, what the problem with it is, especially in a, in a burgeoning mind, one that hasn't had enough experience yet to inform all of these new explosions of thought and feeling is that if, if I'll just use the first person, so imagine I'm an adolescent. If I start believing I'm awesome because I've convinced you that I'm awesome, then what happens if you change your mind? Do I have an anchor? Like, do I have a compass that I know that's the real what I am? Or is it 
untethered, just floating with the with the whimsical opinions of this gigantic permanent audience. And so you see, I see tons of exhibitionism. You know, the I'm doing it. I'm doing this particular behavior because I know I'm being watched. Whatever it happens to be, whether it's shyness or outgoing, being outgoing or or doing stupid things or being foolish or being, you know, aggressive, whatever it is, it seems to be determined by the audience. Like everyone's kind of always putting on a show. And look at me, I'm such a hypocrite. I'm talking to you on a show. But at least this is the real me. Um, and social media is just playing such a huge part of it. And a lot of it, a lot of the audience are people they know, people in their social group. So they almost kind of, a lot of times, want to affect an outcome. I want this person to see how hot I am, so maybe they'll break up with their girlfriend and they'll end up choosing me. Um, and just, just I, and there's also a dishonesty to it, like um, what you see is not what you get. Um, we, my kids used to call it fronting, a lot of fronting. And it got me thinking, really, it got me thinking about this. Who are these people? Like, I, I, had, I had classes where, it, <clears throat> say there was four or five kids in the class, and the class clown arrived. The class clown was a class clown because there was an audience. He would elicit reactions from different members of his audience. In his mind, they're his audience. And it would really end up engulfing his behavior. And a lot of times it was bad behavior and really frustrating and annoying behavior. And it was obvious that he was, you know, showing out, as they say. And it made me wonder, like, I would be looking at one of these kids. Well, for lack of a, a name, we'll make one up. We'll say Cardell. Cardell is acting a fool because there's people there to watch him act a fool. Whatever kind of attention he believes he's getting from it, even if it's negative, because that counts as attention, um... I got to wondering, like, who is Cardell when he's alone? When there's no phone to show out on and have an audience, when there's no audience, who is Cardell? Does he, does he actually think and feel things when there's no one there to like it or click it? I just, I was wondering, like, what's inside there when there's no audience? Does he, like, power down like a robot? He just goes to just goes into his, the corner of his room and leans up against the wall and flicks a switch and just powers down? Because I never saw that, what it, what it was when he's alone. It, it wouldn't be possible because I would be there watching it. But I know what I'm like when I'm alone. At least I can gauge that when I don't have an audience. Who am I? Um... Does this, you know, my my true self? I, I I kind of I like to think that I I am my true self, and that is what other people see. Not when other people are around. This is the self I project. And it's hard. I do it. I mean, I do it. But you know, I wonder: are they are they even aware that a true self exists? That that's a thing. When they're alone, or they just sleep. You know, are they nothing or at least nothing conscious? It's it's strange. Mark Twain said, and this is about children, 
I've seen, I've seen this also. Mark Twain said, children are just criminals yet to be reformed. Children are just criminals yet to be reformed. And in a sense, it is true. We are born uncivilized. All right, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that after this quick break. And welcome back to Sam Walking in the World, episode 11. That message was brought to you by an early 90s disc jockey. Now, I'll repeat it one more time. Mark Twain said that children are criminals yet to be reformed. And I guess what he means by that is we are not born in a state of civilization. I guess it kind of gets back to the fact that we are animals and that we were created as individuals. What do I mean as individuals? Well, we are one. We are self. And we're the only eyes we see out through, especially when you're when you're just, just, just becoming aware of yourself, or even before you're aware of yourself, like when you're a baby, a toddler. Um, you only know your own wants. And, and it's kind of like society's job to civilize you, starting with your parents, your family. And if, if family and parents don't do a good job of civilizing the criminal, reforming them from their natural state in a sense, then they're going to continue on that path of what a natural inclination is to an animal, like, like sharing. Children are not born knowing how to share. It's not an automatic instinctive thing. I have some stuff. Here, you can have some of my stuff. How about I give you some of my stuff? I'm me. My stuff. I want. And I just feel like for a lot of people, that doesn't go away. Um, I, mean, I mean, including myself. You know, it's a default setting. And I think... It's important to remain aware of that. Um, and it's up to the our loved ones, the people who care about us, to remind us. And we kind of have a way of sort of reminding each other to kind of stay in this civilized state. But I, I do believe selfishness is the natural state. Egocentric is the natural state. And I wonder if this is also true of, of awareness of self. Like, if your parents were robots that powered down when there was no audience, you're probably going to be a robot that powers down when there's no audience. And the danger, like I said before, is if, if you place the power in the hands of your audience and they decide for whatever reason, trends, fads, a mood they're in, they decide that you're not awesome or that you're terrible, what do you have to defend yourself against being terrible? You, in, in, the way, in that paradigm, you're terrible. You might as well just go to your bedroom and power down. There's nothing at the root. And, and with this permanent audience, I feel like people are in touch less and less with their root. And it causes kind of emotional mayhem. And whatever the time is, whether it was 
you know, the age of the printing press and people started to get to share their self with an audience by writing things down and having other people read them as a window into who they are. And, and, and I'm sure right at that point, people started to depend on what other people thought about them. And it, it entered into the equation. It, it had to, you know, who you know you are had to share room with who other people think they are. And, and it's a tricky equation. Like there's no real hard and fast rules. I think it is something that you're shown. You're, it's something that you, your, your parents reform you of that thought that you have to care about what other people think in that way. But it's so hard with social media being the way it is. Um, and it got me thinking about what is it that, that is the, what, what feeling changes behavior best? So if you're acting a fool, and everyone gets to see it now when you're acting a fool, what what causes you, like I said before, back in the day, it would be people would remember what you did the night before, and they would talk about it, and you would hear them talking about it, and someone that you care about or that cares about you would hear it and come over to you and be like, look, man, this is what you did. And you're like, oh, no, God. Well, at least they'll forget about it eventually. Well, that doesn't happen anymore. And so I think it's necessary for there at least to be, for people to at least be aware of when it's time to change their behavior. And um, I always thought, I would like to believe that, that love is the greatest fixer of behavior. When a person feels loved, then they don't feel the need to be exhibitionist. They don't need to make an argument for their own worth. Um, they just believe it intrinsically because someone has put it there. Because someone that you care about most, like your mother. Like, my mother loves me. Un unconditionally. And that's something that you can't take for granted. You know, you can't say, well, I can't say, like, my mom loves me unconditionally, so I'm going to go be a complete moron. She has no choice. She's got to love me anyway. You know, it, it inspires you to not be a moron. You know, it just gives you a sense of, of worth. Like I was saying in another episode, it's a chicken or the egg. Do you do the right thing because you feel good about yourself? Or do you feel good about yourself because you did the right thing? It's a spiral either way. I don't know which came first, but it's definitely a spiral. One leads to the other again and again and again. And when you get into a cycle where you're doing something that is like a moron, um, what, what is it that gets you out of it? And I honestly, I, as much as I would love to believe that it is love, I think it's shame. I think shame is the greatest motivator in the world. Because of the time we're living in right now with the permanent audience, um, you can't escape it. If you get drunk and do something on Twitter or, or your Facebook page is filled with a bunch of stuff that you... You can't believe later on looking at it that it was there. I guess at least you could delete it, but other people could have downloaded it by then. But shame is so available now. And it is a shame that shame is the greatest motivator. I feel like in a way it shouldn't be. But I think that is a, a definitely a function of the permanent audience. Um, but here's the thing. It, it, it kind of holds for everybody. Everybody's doing these things that 
are shameful at times. And so while what you do lasts forever and the mistakes you make can be repeated on a permanent loop, so can everybody else's. So in a way, it's kind of like a it's kind of like a, a herd immunity to moronness. It's not a good word. I don't think that's really a word, but you understand what I mean. Because everyone else has a, a, a few things that they're ashamed of that everyone else is privy to at any time. Probably hurts you when you're trying to get a job. But I would think that the guy interviewing you has some of his own stuff. How do you get past the interview? You know, we're not perfect. We are what we are. Um, but it's so funny because, like, <laughs> because there's so much out there like this, somebody could say, hey, did you see that humiliating thing that guy did on YouTube? To which you could answer both, definitely yes, and probably not. Because there's just so much. Which I guess is good. I guess is good because, you know, like I said, it's herd immunity to idiocy on display. Um, I myself have a Twitter account and a Facebook account. I don't have Instagram. Um, but I just don't feel the impulse to immediately make it known what I'm doing to other people. Again, what a hypocrite. Here he is talking to you. But I also, while I care what you think, I don't care what you think. And, and like I said in, in another episode, it doesn't need to be captured in order for it to have happened. And it works that way, too. There's so much stuff out there that nobody ends up going back and looking at it, even your awesome stuff. You know, if you were awesoming on one of your videos and, and you, you capture it and you're like, yes, I got it. Now it's never going to go away. And then you place it as a grain of sand on a giant beach. I guess you could go back and look at it, but you're probably busy making new ones. Hopefully good ones. Anyway, I kind of rambled there a little bit, but that's what I have to say about the age of the permanent audience. And uh, with that, as always, I appreciate you listening. I hope to see you soon. Hopefully tomorrow.